0: Well, good morning. morning. We're glad that you're with us this morning, whether you're here in person or online. And a special welcome to those that might be first-time guests. Uh, We're glad that you're with us this morning. As Ms. Kelly just said in that announcement, you are here for a two-part series where we're going to be exploring what the Bible has to say about our state. Our state of being, which unfortunately for us sometimes can be being lost. And so this week we're going to be looking at one of those two ways that you can be lost Before we jump into all that, too, let me just remind you and highlight one other thing from that. It's hard to be lost when you're in community, too. And so if you're not yet connected into a group, to a Bible study, into a house, church, whatever it may be, or coming here on a Wednesday night where they give you food and a Bible study, I pray that you consider that. See if God might be stirring your heart to uh, take that next step and see what he might have for you in that to be found in community as well. Well, as we jump into this, we're going to be looking at a teaching from Jesus. This actually is in a uh, section of scripture where Jesus is not only teaching his disciples, teaching sinners and tax collectors, he's also teaching Pharisees, and he's talking about being lost. He actually teaches with three different parables, the parable of the sheep, the parable of the coin, the parable of the lost son. And by doing this, having this trifecta of lostness right in a row we see patterns emerge and themes emerge within these three parables with a sheep if you haven't heard it it's, there's a hundred sheep one of them is lost a shepherd goes and finds the one lost sheep puts it on his shoulders brings it back and celebrates a woman has coins she loses one of them she turns her house upside down sweeps it clean finds the lost coin and then she celebrates In the case of the coin, there's an item. In the case of the sheep, there's an animal. There's something that's lost. Someone that seeks, and once it is found, it's not simply found, but there is a celebration. It all sets up towards this third parable, the parable of this son that becomes lost. And for ourselves to see see ourselves in this story properly, I think we need to actually look at another story first. Because with a sheep, sheep are not known for being very bright. A sheep becomes lost, sheep need shepherds, sheep need sheepdogs, sheep needs pens. A coin, I mean, come on, it's an inaudible object, it's lost, it's not like it's going to call out for help. So if we look at that, we go, okay, so how is that thing becoming lost? It's just simply misplaced. But here with this son, this is the one out of these three parables as this pattern is set up for us that we begin to see ourselves most clearly as Jesus' is teaching. And so to see it most clearly in this parable, I want to share another story with you first. In the late 18th century, there is a royal ship uh, in the Royal Navy uh, that is a trade ship called the HMS Bounty. It's in the South Pacific, off of Australia near Tahini, and it has been sent there to go collect breadfruit. Because, you know, the Royal Navy, they love breadfruit Um, And they're there. And the interesting thing about breadfruit is it doesn't become ripe really quick. So when they get there, the HMS Bounty, captain and crew, they come up to this island and they have to just settle in. They get comfortable. They're there for a while because they're waiting for all the crop to come in so they can take it back. It's not just stopping in real quick, loading up, and moving on. They're there for months. What happens in the hearts of some of the crew members during that time is they become pretty accustomed to beach life. They're hanging out, they're enjoying the, the locals while they're there, they're enjoying the food, they're enjoying the weather, they're enjoying the beach, they're listening to Jimmy Buffett. They love it there. We know they love it there because within just a few short weeks, once the HMS bounty has loaded up all of its cargo and it starts to head off, a guy by the name of Fletcher Christian which I just think is so appropriate. Here's this guy with the name Christian, not acting like a Christian. Fletcher Christian leads a mutiny against the captain, William Bly. And here in this photo, you see William Bly and 18 of his loyal followers set adrift in an open raft in the open ocean so that Fletcher Christian and all the other mutineers can head back to Tahiti to go live that beach life. They knew what the good life was. And what they're doing here in this instance, flesh your Christian, is looking at the captain and he's saying, I don't want to listen to one more order. I don't want to do what you want to do. I don't want to be a part of the ship where you're the captain. I'm the captain now and you can go ahead and get lost. I have an idea of what the good life is and the good life is life is not listening to your orders day in and day out and being part of this navy. I want to go ahead and And live life on my own terms. I believe this idea of mutiny, this idea of just complete disobedience, disrespect from a subordinate towards his captain, helps to set the stage just a little bit for us to understand on a deeper level what's taking place in the parable that Jesus is sharing. So, to jump back into where Jesus is sharing this trifecta of lost parables, you can go ahead and grab a Bible. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15 starting in verse 11 if you're grabbing one of the bibles that's here it's going to be found on page 874 and we encourage those that are online to follow along too we're going to be hanging in this text for our time together today and it might be titled there in your bible as it is many the parable of the prodigal son Now, prodigal is not a term that we often use in our regular vernacular, so to help us out a little bit, here's some definitions of prodigal. It's one who spends or gives lavishly or foolishly. It's also one who has returned after a long absence. And we're going to see here in this story that there's someone who spends foolishly, yet there's someone else who gives lavishly, and there is this son who returns after a long absence. So in Luke 15, Jesus is there, he's teaching, he's sitting with his disciples and all these others gathered around, and he's into his third parable, and he says this, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This is mutiny. This is complete and utter disrespect within this culture those that are listening to this story, sitting there with Jesus, having a younger son come before his father, and we just read it here on this page, and it says, give me my share of property that's coming to me. What he is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to listen to your orders anymore. I don't want to live on your property. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I have an idea what the good life is, and it has nothing to do with you or anything you want to tell me to do. I want my inheritance, and I don't care what happens to you. I want nothing with your relationship. I want life on my own terms. That idea of mutiny, you can see, helps to set this for us. That is what this son is saying to the father. I want my inheritance now. What's astounding is the father gives him what he wants. It would not have been unheard of if this son was that Disrespectful saying something that disgraceful, that rude to his father, for the father to cast him aside. But the father graciously somehow divides his property. And here the Greek term property not only means property, like the land that he owns, but he's dividing his very life. He's dividing his life. His life is caught up in the land that he works and produces on, and he's dividing his life between his two sons. This is a costly act for the father. And not many days later, this younger son, he gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless, reckless living. This divided property, this is not just something that's taking place in a vacuum within inside the family unit for this property to be divided, and for the son to gather all that he had together, that is to say that he liquidated it. He took whatever acreage, whatever that he was given in his inheritance, and he turns it into cold, hard cash. So now all of a sudden, this disagreement, this disrespect that he's giving his father in private has now become a public affair. Everyone within the community now knows that this son, this son now has his father's inheritance, yet the father's still living. Why? Why would the father do that? So not only is the father disgraced by his son to his face, but now he's disgraced within the community because he's the father, the father that gave up his inheritance before he passed. And then we see that the son, he pursued an idea of what the good life looked like to him. His idea of relaxing on the beach, he went off to a far-off country showing us again, he wanted absolutely nothing to do with the father. He wanted to get away from his father, away from his family, away from all the things that he knew, so that he could go live life on his own terms. And it says that he spent it in reckless living. Spent it all on himself. And then he spent it all. Not 90%, not 95% of it. He had spent everything, picking up here in verse 14. He spent everything. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields, or the fields to feed pigs. This, uh, this is almost uh, perfect timing here. And if this was an Aesop fable, if this was a, just a moral lesson, this would be the end of it. You disrespect your parents, you're going to spend it all, and you're going to feed pigs. End of story. Moral, listen to mom and dad. <laughs> it doesn't end there for us, though. The severe famine arises... At the perfect or at the worst time, depending on how you look at it, he spent everything. He's in this far-off country. He has no support system, no family, nothing to fall back on, no support group whatsoever, and now all of a sudden he's in need. He's in such great need, as we're going to see in a minute, is that he goes and he feeds pigs, and why that is such a disgraceful thing for him to do. The other thing I want to note here is that he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. This, too, like feeding pigs, is something that he should have no part of. To say he hired himself out is also to say he joined himself. He connected himself to this Gentile pig farmer. And again, to see this in within context, Jesus is speaking to his Jewish audience, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, his disciples all gathered around him, that this son, this Jewish son of a landowner is now hired out to a Gentile pig farmer, but it gets worse. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. I mean, this is rock bottom for this guy. This is the lowest point that could be imaginable for this younger son. He has no business being connected to a Gentile farmer. He has no business being anywhere near pigs, and now he is so hungry, and this famine is so severe, that what little wage he's able to earn as being a servant to this farmer, he's still not able to afford food because he's longing. Longing to eat pig slop, longing to eat pig food. These pods, actually, if you dig into it, some think that it would be these, carob pods. Looks appetizing, doesn't it? You can still find carob pods to this day, but if you do and you want to use them as some ter- sort of nutritional supplement, you actually have to get it in a very fine ground powder. That is because to eat a carob pod is essentially like chewing on a leather shoe. They would use carob pods in this culture at this time to fatten animals, in particular to fatten pigs. And the only other thing that would eat carob pods would be those that are desperately poor because there's little to no nutritional value, and they were so difficult to eat. This is what he's longing for. This is the rock bottom point. No family, no friends, no money, no support, and longing to eat pig food. And let's just take a quick rewind. You don't have to turn there, because I just have these scriptures for you. But in Leviticus Leviticus chapter 11, I'm going to highlight a couple verses for us, so again we can understand why this is such a low point. In verses 7 and 8, it says this, And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. This is God speaking his law to his people, to his Jewish people, before this law has been done away with. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. God makes a very big deal about things that are unclean and unclean, holy and unholy. And a pig is one of these things that is unclean, unholy, and that God's people, that he has set apart, should have nothing to do with them. And to break that law is a sin. And even more than that, it goes on in Leviticus chapter 11, and in verse 24 it says this, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the people's. Therefore, you shall separate the clean bees from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. Here, getting to the point that as God is doing this, this is a didactic style that God is using, a teaching style where he's saying, I'm not only setting you apart from pigs and these animals and these unclean things, I'm teaching you that you are a clean people, a holy people that I have set apart, and you shall separate yourselves from other peoples. This son has joined himself to a Gentile farmer. More than that, he is hanging out with pigs, which he should have nothing to do with, both of these things being sins according to these laws. All this after having told his father that his father should might as well be dead, get lost, I want your stuff and I want nothing to do with you. This pig pen is the lowest point that, that we could imagine for this son. Now the question is, Do you see yourself there? Because Scripture tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 6, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. That within our hearts, our hearts that are not inclined towards God, that we have an idea of what the good life is, and oftentimes it has absolutely nothing to do with worshiping or honoring God or pursuing His will. But in overt or sometimes in subtle ways, that we actually turn to God and commit an act of mutiny and say, God, I don't want life on your terms, I want life on my terms. I want to pursue what I think to be the good life, and it doesn't really have anything to do with you or following your rules. I know that you offer me forgiveness, and that's fine and great, but I don't want you as any other part of my life. I mean, in small ways, let's think about this. If you just went through the pattern of your last week and you thought how many different opportunities you had to open Scripture or to spend time in prayer, but you know what? God wasn't worth that much time to you because you had stuff you needed to do and things you needed to get done, and you know what? I have an idea of what the good life is, and it really doesn't have time for Scripture. Or what about just our prayers? If every one of your prayers from this last week was answered, would anyone else's life be any better or just yours? And maybe it is the case that they would be, but what I'm trying to do here is to show you and help us all see, because I'm in the same camp as all of you, is that our hearts are inclined against God. That as it says here, that we all desire to go our own way. And oftentimes we go the way against God. And they can be these big Uh, verbose ways where we come before God and say, I want nothing to do with you. I don't believe in you. I don't believe in any God. Or it can be in these very subtle ways where we actually put ourselves on his throne and we try to control certain things in our lives, whether it be our finances, our health, or otherwise, where we're really saying to God is, I got this under control. I don't really need you. I don't want a relationship with you, but I sure like your stuff. And how would your life turn out? How would your life turn out if you always got everything that you wanted? So just a couple weeks ago, before kicking off into the school year, we were gathered around the table, and we were having dinner, and the thought crossed my mind. I'd seen and heard of some people just, you know, simply saying yes to their kids. What a concept. Saying yes to your kids. And so we pulled aside our two-year-old, and we just asked him, all right, so for this evening, With a couple hours that we have left, what do you want to do? And he had to think hard. And the older brother really wanted to chime in and tell him, this is what you want. But he had to think hard. The first thing he came up with, that claw machine at Buffalo Wild Wings. That's where I want to go. That is the good life. So what we do? We load up our three boys. We head there. We take a couple of bucks. Luckily, it's one of these claw machines you always get a prize. I didn't know that was a thing. But you always get a little prize, a little trinket. And so that was the first thing he wanted to do. The next, okay, okay, Judah, you got the claw machine. What do you want next? Ice cream. Of course, we had dinner. Now it's time for ice cream. So we had to go to an ice cream parlor. We said yes to him. So we spent time there. And while we're at the ice cream parlor, wouldn't you know, just out the window, you can see a park. Well, let's go to the park. That's the next thing. Yes, we're going to go there. And that's where it ended for us, because surely if we continued on this pattern of saying yes to everything, it eventually is going to, it's going to wear him down. Just in that evening, you know, it took us on a different little journey than we would have gone. He got ice cream, he went into the park, he stayed up a little bit later, he got to eat a little bit of that delicious ice cream. But if you multiply that out over a lifetime, and said, okay, every time I want ice cream, I get ice cream. Every time I want to stay up late, I get to stay up late. Every time I get to do this, I, want, I get to do this. I, what would that do to the person? What would eventually happen is that you would begin to believe, well, man, I, I deserve this stuff. I really should get this stuff. I, you know what? Yeah, this is the good life. Every desire of my heart, as long as it's fulfilled, then, then I'm good. And what that eventually does is it elevates us, in our own minds, in our own hearts, the level of God. And then we have nothing to do with him because we know we can have this wonderful life apart from him, and we just want these things rather than having him. But it's in the low point, and it's in the pig pen that we oftentimes come to our senses, don't we? When all of a sudden some of these things have been taken away and stripped away, and you no longer have all those comforts, those creature comforts, those things that we desire, And you realize that when all you have is God, that all you need is God. So for this younger son, here's this blessing in the pig pen that he doesn't have any finances. He can't stand on his own two feet, and he makes a plan. In verse 17, it says this, but when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, finally, it had to come to this. He had to spend every cent, and he had to be longing after pig food. Some of us come to our senses sooner. But some of us have to be in the pig pen. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Now he's thinking back and he remembers that his father's property, there were hired servants there. And his father was a kind and gracious man. He must have been because he graciously gave his son all this stuff that he didn't deserve. And those servants, those servants got to eat bread. They didn't have to eat these pig pods. So you know what? I'm going to go back. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. That is to say, I have sinned against God. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Full stop. That should be the end of his speech. There's nothing else that needs to be said here, but this is the heart of the younger son, and it is the heart of me, and it is the heart of you as well. He says, treat me as one of your hired servants. Dad, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I know I need to apologize, but have I got a deal for you? I'm going to bargain my way back into this family. I'm, I want this bread, maybe still a little bit more than I want a relationship with you, or maybe I don't believe I can still have a relationship with you, and that if I become one of your hired servants then slowly over time, I could earn back all the property that I wasted in reckless living. He has this plan. Treat me as a hired servant. He doesn't want to be a slave, but as a hired servant, he would have certain rights. And I believe we do this too. That when we get down to that low point, into the pig pen, whatever it may be, that low point of your life where you finally come to your senses, one of the very first things that we can do, rather than just simply calling out to God and recognizing that He's there waiting for us to call upon Him, is that we can call upon Him with a deal, with a bargain. God, if you fix this situation, then I'll be obedient. God, if you do this, I'll dedicate my life to you. God, if you heal this person, man, I'll be forever grateful. God, if then, if then... God, if you do this, then I will finally be obedient. Then I will be one of your loving children. The problem is when you go before the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who spoke everything into being, you don't have any chips. You have nothing to bargain with. You have nothing to offer him. Yet the son, in this instance, thinking, I can be your hired servant. I can offer you this labor. We, in our own way, deceive ourselves and think we have something to offer God when really before God? We have nothing to give him. And here, jumping back in, we see what happens here with the loving father, what actually transpires. He has this plan, this speech, this way he's going to bargain with dad and try to earn his way back in the family, and here's what actually takes place. So this is the younger son. He arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. I love those words. The average human eye can see three miles towards the horizon before the curvature of the earth starts to bend and you don't see any further. You can recognize things somewhere between a mile and a mile and a half. Now, typically, you're not able to recognize a face unless it's within 50 meters of you. But for those that you know really well, you know the gait of their walk, you know their gestures, you know how they move, you can recognize them from a much further distance. Whatever the distance is here, the Father has had his eyes set on the horizon. The father, from the instance that his son told him, I wish you were dead, give me your stuff, has been watching the crest of the horizon to see when his son, the one that he recognized, would finally come over that and that he would see him returning home. From the instance the son took that money from him, from the instance the son spent all that money, from every instance that the son was spending time in a pig pen longing to eat pig slop, the father was there waiting For the son to return, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. The father felt compassion, which is this visceral gut feeling of mercy being extended towards his son, and he ran, which is ridiculous. In no way, shape, or form would a landowner, an elder man have lifted his robes to run any extent of a distance. He has hired servants and he has another son. He could send a delegation to go bring his son to him where he would be seated waiting for him. No, the father lifts his robes and runs whatever distance that is to embrace him and kiss him. And I want you to see this and don't miss this. He ran to him, he embraced him, he kissed him before the son said a word. The son didn't have an opportunity to repent. The son didn't have an opportunity to say, I'm so contrite, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have, I'm so... No. The father was the first to move. The father was the first to act. The father says everything with his actions about his heart towards his son. And the son still launches into his speech, probably overwhelmed with emotion that his father is even embracing him in this way because this is certainly not what he expected. And he jumps in and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Again, full stop. No more bargaining, no more plan, because the father cuts him off. No, he's not going to have any of the The father doesn't actually even address his son. He's too busy embracing him and kissing him, and he turns to his servants. The very first thing the father says is to his servants rather than to his son. Bring quickly the best robe, which be the father's robe. Put a ring, uh, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. There again, seeing this pattern of the lost thing being found in a celebration. But these three things here, the robe being put on him, the shoes on his feet, meeting the needs of the son as he's in these tattered, dirty, stinky, pig pen clothes with probably no more shoes or holes worn in his shoes, but then this ring a ring, a signet ring placed on his hand which says, you're my son. Whatever you say is my word. You are my son again. You are reinstated. Not because of how sorry you are, not because that you have come back, but because I love you and because you were dead and now you are alive. Here's a a picture Front in the same 17th or 18th century time where you see the image of this prodigal son, this lost son who had spent so foolishly, and this prodigal father, prodigal not in the sense of being foolish, but prodigal in the sense of giving lavishly, that in an instance, he gives him the best robe, the best ring and shoes for his feet, and then calls for the fattened calf, as you can see in the side of this photo, being taken off to slaughter. And man, does that little kid look happy that he gets to eat that cow, doesn't he? But the good news here is that while the whole community knew, they knew that the son had disgraced the father. They knew that the son had spoken out against the father and had taken his inheritance and he had spent it. They knew all that. The community knew. Now for a fattened calf to be killed. That is not just a meal for a father and son or father and sons. This is a community gathering, a community celebration, calling together the same community that knows everything that's taking place here in this household. And the father's still so lavishly loving this son, not just filling his belly with bread, but giving him him and that entire community the fattened calf. And why would he do this? The father tells us the exact reason why. Because my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then they began to celebrate. I believe that oftentimes as believers that we can miss this fact. That if we look into our own hearts and our own minds that we can think and we should think of the places where we have placed ourselves in the place of God. Where we have broken his very first commandment that we should have no other gods before him. As Jesus stated that you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, your soul, and your strength. We fall short of that time and time again because our propensity as sinful human beings is to desire our own will above God's. It's been that way since the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when we reach for the fruit to have knowledge like God. So I know it to be true of me and I know it to be true of you that we time and time again, even as believers, we fall back into that same pattern. But the good news is this, that while we fall into that pattern, when we come back home, when we come before a Father, we don't come before a God who is waiting for us with arms crossed and ready to have a word of judgment and discipline, but rather we come back to a God who is waiting and longing and watching the horizon for the first inclination that we head back towards and He's ready to fully embrace you, forgive you, and offer you grace and mercy that you don't deserve that this is a free gift of grace and mercy that's offered to you and offered to me, but it is also a costly gift of grace and mercy. Because you see there, as the community gets to celebrate around the slaughter of a fattened calf, that you and I, the sin that we have before God, the times that we continually fall back into this pattern of making ourselves our own God and pursuing what we believe to be the good life, every single time we do that, Jesus knew every single one of those times. Every single one of those times that you and I place ourselves above God, he went to the cross for every single one of those times, put those on his shoulders and died for those sins so that we could come before a father, a father who would meet us with loving, at a loving embrace rather than with scorn. We don't have a father who only wants us at his feet, but you have a loving father who invites you into his feast. We don't simply come before God groveling and repentant and contrite about all the things that we have done wrong. And those are good and right things to do, but I think we miss this other half. There is a celebration we have access to now. And here today, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, in communion we have a very real, tangible way to experience the forgiveness of God, not just simply remember, it, but experience the sacrifice. Remember Christ's body and blood given and shed for you so that you have access to the Father now. And that is also not only forgiveness for you and I today, but it is a foretaste of the feast that is to come one day. Knowing full well that all the things that we think here in this life that are the good life, they pale in comparison with what Jesus is preparing for us. There is a place setting for you in heaven. He is ready for you. He is making a place. And that is a reason for us to celebrate. And we can have full confidence in this. In John chapter 6, verse 37, it says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, whoever comes to Jesus, I will never cast out. No matter the type of prodigal, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter how deep the sin, no matter how long the sin has gone on in your life, there is no way he will ever cast you out. All that come before Christ will never be cast out because he came with a specific mission and that was to seek and save the lost. So for this first week on this idea of lostness, on this reality of lostness, for those of us that are believers or those that are not yet believers, you need to hear this. You simply need to be found. You don't need to do a thing, lift a finger. You need to come before a God who is ready to offer you forgiveness. There is no plan. There is no bargaining. There is nothing that you can offer him that is any more worthy than the sacrifice that his son has already given and that we need to, for the first time or for the thousand, thousands time, be found. Be found in Christ. Be found as a forgiven child of God and have full confidence that there is a place for you at the feast. And there, there is more in this life as we come back and embrace the Father that it was we can pursue his will over and above our will and that we can be a people that live as people that are found and that can point all others who are lost and far from God, letting them know that they have full access to that same forgiveness and that same loving father and they simply just need to be found as well. Come before the father. He's ready. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word God, we thank you for these parables, these stories of lost things, lost items, lost animals, and lost sons. That God, we pray that as we look into your word that we would see a clear reflection of our own hearts. And God, that while it might be uncomfortable, because when we see this reflection, it shows us things that we often don't want to see, that our hearts are inclined away from you. And that we often try to go our own way with our own life in pursuing what we think to be right and good. Father, forgive us and remind us that we not only come before you sorry and repentant on our feet, but that, God, you meet us, embrace us, and you invite us into the feast. God, let us experience that here this morning through your gift of holy communion. And let us go forth from this place, not with heads hung low, but heads lifted high, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, knowing that there is a place for us in your family here now, and there is a place for us in eternity as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.